You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. This is Bible teacher Nelson Walters, and today we're going to talk about how the book of Revelation and the end times parallel the exodus that occurs in the book of Exodus, and especially how the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn Egyptians, is also paralleled in the book of Revelation, how it impacts the rapture how it impacts the 144,000. We have quite an episode for you today. Now, a lot of people don't realize, but the Exodus was used as a parable, as an analogy of sorts for the majority of the book of Revelation. Look at the 10 plagues. Consider how they're similar to the trumpet and bowl judgments and even some of the seals. And as you're going to find out today, The actual Exodus event is a picture of sorts of the rapture. And we learn an awful lot when we compare Exodus to Revelation. So let's get started. It was the day of reckoning. In the first nine plagues, God had judged the Egyptian little g-gods in various ways, leaving the people of Egypt economically and spiritually devastated. Then came the 10th plague, the one from which they could not recover. In Exodus 12, we learn the angel of the Lord killed the firstborn of the Egyptians and the firstborn of all their livestock. And the Bible is specific. The Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne. That mention of his throne is important. To the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Exodus 12, 29. Now, we could just read past this verse as we often do and miss what's going on. Remember, in the previous videos, we have discussed that Pharaoh was thought to be the physical incarnation of their god, Horus himself. So when Pharaoh said something, it was like Horus saying something. And of course, Pharaoh's heir was thought to be Horus as well. So when that heir died, it was like Horus himself dying. To the Egyptians and to Pharaoh, the death of this heir was our true God, Yehovah, killing Horus, their God. In the previous plague, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, to the Egyptians, God appeared to blot out their supreme God, Ra, the sun God, and the eye of Ra, their number one symbol the source of their afterlife and immortality. Now, in this plague, our God appeared to kill one of their gods. These two events cast overwhelming doubt on the Egyptian religion and their afterlife. This was likely crippling to Pharaoh and his noblemen and his court. Now, famously, the firstborn of Israel, who had been protected by blood on the doorposts and lintels, did not die. God said this to Moses, kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. 
None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Exodus 12, 21 through 23. Jesus, of course, is our Passover lamb, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It is his blood and only his blood that will save you. If you remember the previous nine plagues, they did not affect the areas where the Israelites were staying. It was dark in Pharaoh's capital city, but not in Goshen where the Israelites were. But this plague, this plague was different. The Israelites had to do something specific to avoid the destroyer angel. They had to paint their door frames and lintels. They had to paint the blood of the lamb, symbolically the blood of Christ, on their door frames. No one was saved just because they were an Israelite anymore. They were given a warning, but they had to act in faith to actually be saved. This is super important. The 10th plague was a plague of decision. They could have believed that the blood would save them all they wanted, but if they didn't actually paint it on their door frames and lintel, they weren't saved. The destroyer came into the house. Does this mean that some Israelite families didn't paint their doorposts? Yes, I imagine. There was ridicule for them doing this in some areas of the Hebrew cities that refused Moses' commands. I can also imagine in other places the families of the Egyptian overlords and slave masters were actually begging the Israelites to take cover inside the Israelite homes that had the blood. They knew how powerful the Israelite God was. They had seen it in the first nine plagues, and they knew how powerless their gods were to stop what was coming. So in faith, these Egyptians asked to enter the Israelite homes. Remember, everyone within the home who had painted blood on their doors were saved. The masters, the Egyptians, became the beggars. And I'm sure that many faithful Israelites accommodated them and hid them in their homes. People might say, why, that would have been against Torah. But remember, Torah wasn't even instituted at this point in time. The next day, when Israel left Egypt, they left as a mixed multitude, which means they left not just as Hebrews, but Egyptians as well. Many Egyptians likely converted to the worship of the one true God after this ordeal with the plagues and became part of Israel. Caleb, from the tribe of Judah, one of two faithful spies, you know, Joshua and Caleb, had Egyptian blood. We shouldn't think of this plague as striking down the Egyptians, but rather as striking down the unrepentant. That's a big difference. Vast numbers of Egyptians then were ready to leave with Moses and Aaron the following morning. This makes Pharaoh's eventual sending of his chariots after the Israelites into the sea all the more understandable. Not only was he seeking revenge on them, but his government and power were rocked, decimated, and he was humbled. If he didn't send his charioteers after Moses, there probably would have been a coup against him by his nobles and the landowners. 
when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Exodus 14, 5 through 8. Where in the book of Revelation, however, do we see something very similar to this? Where in the book of Revelation does Israel have to make a decision to follow Jesus and paint the blood, so to speak, on their doorposts? Well, in Revelation 7, 1 through 8, we see 144,000 from the tribes of Israel being sealed. Now, this is a difficult to understand passage. Many view this being sealed as being protected. And certainly, they are being protected. But in the New Testament, the word sealed always refers to being saved, being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The word sealed is used this way in several places. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22, we read, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is salvation. In Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Again, sealing is being saved. In Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In this instance, sealing is specifically salvation and not really protection. As we're going to see in Revelation, it means the same thing there. The 144,000 are saved when they're sealed. You're probably saying to yourself, hey, wait a minute, Nelson. That is not what is taught in traditional classic pre-wrath doctrine. That's correct. Now, I happen to have a great deal of respect for Van Campen and Rosenthal, who blazed a trail in my own personal understanding of the end times. But that doesn't mean they were necessarily correct 100% of the time on every single point. They could also be mistaken here or there, just like I could or any of the other teachers on this channel. And this is one of the areas where I think they were mistaken. Most scholars, instead of looking to the New Testament for the meaning of the word sealed, look to the Old Testament and Ezekiel 9.4 for that meaning. The Lord said to him, and this is an angel who is going to seal Israelites in the city of Jerusalem, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. So, those marked were protected from a coming invasion. And God is going to protect a large group of Israelites when Jerusalem is invaded. But think about when that happens. It happens at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. But the sealing of the 144,000 happens after the sixth seal. 
and prior to the pouring out of the wrath of God in the form of the trumpet and bowl judgments. So the sealing and purpose of the sealing in Ezekiel does not match Revelation and the sealing of the 144,000. No, it is very clear to me at least that the 144,000 are saved at that point. Now, you might ask, well, isn't Israel saved at the end? And my answer is yes, the majority, but a small group, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes, is saved earlier at this point. One that's saved after the sixth seal, probably when Jesus appears in the sky, and a second group that isn't saved and doesn't cry out to Jesus until later in Revelation, right before the second coming. Now, you might ask, if they're saved at that point, wouldn't that also mean that they were raptured with the church? Because I guess that would mean they are the church at that point. And I would say to you, yes. And there is evidence of this later in Revelation, and we're going to get to that in this video. So this is the moment, the sealing of the 144,000 that I believe parallels the Exodus saga where the Israelites are protected from the death angel, painting the door frames of their hearts with the blood of the Lamb. Just a few verses later, we see an enormous multitude from every tribe, nation, and language, not just the Israelite tribes, but every tribe, including the Israelites, therefore, before the throne of God in heaven. They suddenly appeared there, according to John, obviously the result of the rapture, about this entire multitude, Israelites and others, we are told these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in, wait for it, the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7:14. There it is, the blood of the Lamb, right in that passage. So this saving and protecting of an Israelite remnant is parallel in Revelation to the Passover. And the key is that phrase, blood of the lamb. And reading on, it is not much later in Revelation, at the sixth trumpet, one third of the population of the earth, still remaining on earth at that time, die from fire and brimstone, cast upon them by killer angels. The image is very similar to what happened in the Passover. And how do those who survive the fire and brimstone react? Well, just like Pharaoh did with pride and arrogance. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Revelation 9, 20 through 21. So these folks who survived did not repent. The parallel is right there between the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, and the events surrounding the rapture and those whose robes are washed in the blood of the lamb. It's uncanny. You know, those not repenting are just like Pharaoh and his noblemen who did not repent and went after the Israelites. And it goes even deeper than that. Revelation refers to the 144,000 that were saved in Revelation 7 as first fruits. Later 
in Revelation 14. And this term is important in understanding what was happening here and how it's further related to the historic Exodus. Let me explain. The purpose of a 10th plague was to deny the wicked in Egypt the first fruits of their offspring, you know, supposedly the strongest and best male children. In Psalm 78:51, it says this, he struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of the strength in the tents of Ham. So God struck the firstborn of Egypt and saved the firstborn of Israel. Now, as we mentioned, Revelation refers to the 144,000 as first fruits. They're first fruits of Israel in the end times because they're Israeli tribes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, Revelation 14.5. Not only are the 144,000 the first fruits of Israel, they're the first fruits of all mankind. What does this mean? Are they raptured ahead of everyone else? Is that what this means? Let me ask you, if it doesn't mean that, if it doesn't mean they're raptured first, what does it mean? In other words, how are they first fruits to God if not in that way? I think we need to explore this a little deeper. Let's see how that passage starts. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Revelation 14.1. God's names on the foreheads are the seal of God. And we see they are on Mount Zion. You know, so every person naturally thinks this is earthly Mount Zion. But please notice, there are two Mount Zions an earthly one in Jerusalem, and a heavenly one in the new Jerusalem. In Hebrews 12, 22, we read, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. So the 144,000 don't have to be on earth at this point in this gathering with Jesus on Mount Zion. They could be in heaven on the heavenly Mount Zion. And I think that's what it is. Let's continue to look at the context in Revelation 14 to find out which it is. See if I'm right. And I heard a voice from heaven. Notice a singular voice, and it's coming from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they... So it switches from a singular to a plural. Who are these they? The last plural group was the 144,000. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Aha, they have to be in heaven. Those groups, living creatures, elders, the throne, all of that's in heaven. No one could learn that song except the 144,000. Now, why is that? Because at this point, they're the only ones in heaven. They're the first fruits who had been redeemed from the earth. These had been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Revelation 14, 2, 3, and 5. There's our answer. They were the first ones raptured into heaven. 
That is a phenomenal statement that rocks most people's theologies. They were the last saved before the rapture, but the first taken into heaven as first fruits. So when Jesus said, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, was he talking about the order of the rapture? I think so. I think that was a portion, not all, but a portion of what he was discussing. In the parable of the vineyard workers, Jesus said this, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Matthew 20, verse 8. So when it comes to rewards, it appears the last saved are going to be rewarded first. Exactly what we said. So the church, which is primarily Gentile, is saved by the blood of a lamb, while it is a minority of Israelites who are saved right before the rapture. This is the exact opposite of what happened in the Exodus, as we talked about before, where it was the Hebrews saved by the blood and likely a minority of Egyptians who joined them. I think that's an interesting turnaround. But what happens to the remaining Israelites that aren't in that first fruits, the 144,000? How does Revelation parallel Exodus for them? What happens to that group? They see Jesus coming on the clouds after the sixth seal, just like the 144,000 do. But they do not repent and come to faith at that time like the first fruits do. Let's look at a couple famous passages that discuss this moment when Israel sees Jesus coming on the clouds. First, Joel 2, 30-32. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now that's the sixth seal. But listen, it goes further. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. That's the 144,000 who escape in the rapture. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. See how this fits with the theory? Let's also look at another famous verse, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. You see, every eye is going to see him coming on the clouds after the sixth seal. That includes Israel. Some the 144,000 repent and are saved at that moment. This is quoting Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Notice the word firstborn. This famous passage then is referring to the appearing in the sky of Jesus at the sixth seal. They are all mourning at that moment, some to salvation, but some aren't quite ready yet or so moved by the Spirit. The second group endures the entire wrath of God period along with so-called Christians who attend church, 
though they think they're saved, they weren't. They missed the rapture as well. And this is one reason why Marquis Laughlin, Pastor Jake McCandless, and I formed our ministry, Last Days Overcomers. It's why we're holding a series of conferences throughout the USA in 2023 and beyond to get churchgoers ready for the return of Jesus. That's why I wrote the book, How to Prepare for the Last Days, available on Amazon. Now, if you desire to help our efforts to reach the church and prepare them, feel free to log on to our website, lastdaysovercomer.org. That's lastdaysovercomer.org. And you can learn where our conferences are, whether they're in your area, you can give, or you can even volunteer. Maybe we'll see you there. We are a body of Christ, and all of us are needed at this urgent time. Till then, blessings. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 